this morning sending and serving. If you'd turn in your Bibles to the ninth chapter here, the Gospel of Luke, and before we get started, I want to remind you that the Gospels, many of these stories, and specifically this one, we're going to get to the feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four of them. But they each have a little bit different spin on them, and so don't be put off by that. There are certain details in each one that they're not necessarily saying one is wrong, the other is right, but they're adding to uh, what is said in one, one of the others. And so we're going to comment a little bit this morning from several of the Gospels because this particular event that's going to come up in the serving portion uh, is, is found uh, in greater detail, uh, specifically in John's Gospel. And so this morning, uh, sending and serving... You know, it's interesting to me that the church has become so engaged in so many things that really Jesus didn't send us out to do. Jesus sent the disciples, uh, no, Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the gospel. He sent the disciples out to go and touch people's lives and heal them. Uh, He didn't really send them out to do some of the things that we get engaged in Though they're not necessarily bad, we need to remember that the primary function of the body of Christ is to make disciples. It's to preach the gospel. It's cause people to come to know Christ and then to live for him. And so this morning we see uh, what is often called the the Great Commission in, in Matthew's gospel. But here he's going to send the disciples out to minister. And so this particular passage uh, is part of the ministry in Galilee. It's not the official Great Commission, but it is a commissioning. He's going to send them out. He says, look, guys, uh, go out and take care of these people. And it's interesting that the very first thing that they do uh, upon being sent out, and the first thing that's recorded, is this kind of monumental failure for them to walk by faith. And so there's two things that we can draw from that. Number one, we're imperfect as human beings. Uh, I'm not a perfect pastor, and you're not perfect people. Um, But we have been gifted and called by the Lord, and so we do our best. And there are times when that best really isn't kind of what the Lord wants us to do. We we biff it every once in a while. Now, we're going to see that in the lives of the disciples. From time to time, you're going to see them take upon themselves a catastrophic failure, if you will, of doing what the Lord uh, wanted them to do. Don't be dissuaded by that. Make sure that it doesn't cause you to walk away from the things that God's called you to do, because every once in a while, those those failures can be a wonderful learning experience, and they cause us to grow, they cause us to really lean on the Lord at times. I know some of the things that the Lord used in my life uh, in the greatest way are really my failures. They're things that I have not done well, things that I've needed extra help on, and so uh, we'll see that message this morning. As we study here in the ninth chapter, we'll pick up the first 17 verses. And so let's pray and ask God to be in our presence and use this time for him. Father, thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. And and Lord Jesus, we can only imagine uh, what it was like for you to lead this, this group, this kind of motley crew, this gathering of men that would go on to be used greatly of you, but certainly far from perfect. And We take some comfort from that, Lord, because all of us can be used. And, Lord, we pray that as we study your word, that it be strength to us, it would be an encouragement to us, it would be a blessing to us, that it cause us to know that each of us has been put on this earth for a purpose. Pray that you draw us near, Lord. Speak to us by the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
verse 1 here in Luke 9. And then he called his 12 disciples together. And I would just draw your attention to a little mist back there. There were 12 disciples specifically, but there are a lot more disciples than 12. These were the 12 that we know, and these guys generally would go on to be known as what we call the apostles. So the 12, though disciples, disciples were simply followers, and we're going to see that uh, there are more than just 12 disciples, more than just 12 followers. There are a lot of followers. These were the main guys, if you will. And so don't be confused when he uses the word disciples, because you all are disciples of Christ. Amen? You're all his disciples. You're followers. You're one who's taught by somebody else. That makes you disciples as well. Very specific group that's being mentioned here. And he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, a little reminder here. The Spirit's not going to come until Pentecost and actually indwell people. So this is a very unique empowering that he's going to give them for the ministry in the region of Galilee. This is the third trip that they're going to take in this region. And so he's doing something very specific that is going to be used in this particular endeavor to minister in the power that's necessary to bring people to that place that they understand that Jesus is God. And, and so the things that they're going to do are very unique. And so he's giving them something that they did not already have. And so he begins to now send them out. And he sent them to preach, notice, the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And so they've made a couple of trips. And you remember the last one they take and they go over to, to Gerza, to Gardeness, and, and they meet the Jimmy Dean demon dude over there, the guy that is you know, over in the bacon section on the other side of the Jordan River. And, and so they, they've made these little forays into the region of Galilee, and there are two of them that have happened. On the first one, he's accompanied by four disciples. On the second one, by all twelve. And so more and more, they're starting to gather around him. I think they're getting the picture. We often talk about the disciples being a little bit slow on the uptake. I think I'm a little slow on the uptake every once in a while, and I, I need to see things repeatedly so that I kind of get it, if you will. And so he's got this group of a dozen men, and they are gathered together around him. They're not all in the same place. And I think there's a, we can see that in kind of the different reactions of Peter and James and John, Andrew, uh, Matthias. I think we see that they're not all in exactly the same place as everybody else, but they are the twelve. And so, so here they begin to, to minister in this way that the Lord's going to send them out. And so there's several things that we can draw from this passage. And it was kind of time for the, the chosen guys to go out, to kind of get their feet wet, so to speak. And I, and I would remind you that as the Lord works in your life, He wants to send you out too. That's something He wants to do in your life. And, and I, I think that sometimes we miss that. We almost get a we almost get a sense that, well, the only people who are really used are, you know, are pastors or people in leadership. And, you know, we kind of look at it almost like this exclusive club. But I want to remind you that God has called each one of you as his disciples to be used by him. He may not use you the way he uses me or anyone else. You are unique, and I am unique. He, he's purposed and skilled and gifted each of us with things that we can do that he wants to use for his glory. But don't miss the fact that he wants to use all of his disciples. This particular group in a very special way, but he wants to use you too. 
And so look for that place that the Lord could use you. And so a couple of things as we begin to break down these first few verses. Look at the, the matter, what I call the matter of their, of, of their might at this point in time. He gives them authority. And remember who these guys are. This is a dozen Galilean peasants, okay? This is not the cream of the crop. Um, the people from the region of Galilee were generally known as fishermen and farmers. And so they were kind of like the honey boo-boo boys. You know, they, they, they were not exactly the sharpest tools in the shed. They, you, so there's, there's a beautiful picture in this because if God could take this group of guys and he makes them into these wonderful tools that are going to be used by him, I think it gives us hope for all of us. You know, sometimes we, we kind of look at ourselves and oh, go, God can't use me. If he can use these guys, he can use all of us. Okay, it, it, you just have to see that here. And, and they desperately needed some kind of enabling because if you look at their story up to this point, they're kind of up and down, and they're they're all over the spiritual map. You know, one moment you see them, it seems like they get it. The very next moment, they haven't got a clue. And I think we can look at our own lives and say there are times when, you know, I was, I was up here, I got it, the Lord was at work in my life, and then all of a sudden, the very next day, anybody ever have those experiences where it's just like, who is this person? You bump into yourself, and it's like, yesterday I was really spiritual, and today I'm like totally carnal. I don't know what happened. I, I don't know where that went. And again, that's not to excuse the carnality. It's simply to say, we have our ups and downs. Don't let that dissuade you from getting back on the horse and riding, because these guys got back on the horse and rode, and eventually they would give their lives all but John uh, for the cause of the gospel. And so they needed that power from on high. And I would also note that this isn't a permanent thing yet. Pentecost is going to come. Remember, they're gathered together in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit sweeps through, and that is a different time, but they needed some power specific. And so the second thing we see here, found in verse 2, is the matter of their message. What was their message? He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. You know, one of the things that I look at in our church is sometimes people get confused because we do a lot of stuff. We have a food ministry, we go on camping trips, you know, we, we minister to homeless people, uh, we have children's ministry and adult ministries and men's and women's, we have all these things going on. Uh, so you can get lost in the things. But I want to remind you, the only reason we do any of those things is so that we can preach the gospel. We want people to know Jesus. All those things would be kind of pointless if there were just some kind of social club. You could go to the YMCA and get that. You could join a health club and get that. You could go to some other secular organization and get that kind of camaraderie or gathering together to where those things are done. The purpose for the church doing those things is given here. It's to preach the kingdom of God. That greater message that Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation and that He alone brings eternal life. And so these other things are a format to do that. So as they're sent out, they're healing these people not just to heal them. They're healing them so that they would know that the healer can heal their hearts and give them eternal life. It, it's so important that we don't lose the main message of the church. The church is to disciple people in, in becoming followers of Christ. It's for us to reach out in all these practical ways so that people would absolutely come to know Jesus. 
a third thing. There's a matter of their money. And, and if you look at this, it's kind of an interesting statement because you would think that to some degree he'd give them some kind of, you know, maybe he gives them a stipend or, he, you know, he sends them out. He'd go, here's my Jesus checkbook, and he writes them a check, and so you guys can go and minister. He doesn't do that. In fact, he does exactly the opposite. And I think you know why. The just shall live by faith. Amen? We're supposed to live by faith as the children of God. In this church, this church pays this church's bills. There is no big fund that we draw from. We don't get money from some organization. Uh, We don't have financial supporters that are elsewhere in the world that send money here. The ministry of this church, just like the ministry of the disciples, was taken care of by the people who were ministered to. And so notice what he says in verse 3, the matter of their money. And he said to them, take nothing. And that word that he uses for nothing literally means no thing. Don't take anything with you is another way to look at it. Don't take anything. So these guys are going to go off on this mission, which we believe lasted about a year. They're going to go out on a mission with absolutely zero ability to take care of themselves. They're going to have to live by faith. There's going to be no choice. And so every day, guess what they're going to be doing? They're going to be on their knees seeking the Lord, the provision. They're going to be looking to God to do things that they themselves can't do for themselves. It's interesting that when you do live by faith, you learn to lean on the Lord. And if you're not leaning on the Lord, there's no leaning to be done. And so he says, take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't even have two outer garments. Don't even take a spare set of clothes. Now, if I were to tell you, hey, I got this awesome idea. We're going to do this ministry down in Ecuador. And I want you to go to, I think God's called you, and I want you to go to Ecuador. And here's what I'd like you to do. Don't take your ATM card. Don't take a suitcase. Matter of fact, take no snacks for the plane. Don't take anything you don't even take Ecuador's mountainous. Don't take a hiking stick. Take nothing. Just go down to LAX, get on the plane, and when you get to Quito, the Lord will show you what you're supposed to do, and He will feed you and take care of where you're going to lay your head and make sure that you have clothes. You're all going, eh uh-uh. <laughs> not happening. Now, because it'd be me saying it, you probably have reason to believe that, but it, it is important for us to realize where God guides, as Pastor Chuck widely, wisely said, God provides. It's God's ministry. He's the one that's going to do it. And if he sends you, then you can expect his provision. And one of the beautiful things about living by faith, and whether that's money or, or things that you need to survive or food, all those kind of things, is if the Lord's really in it, then he's not going to let you starve. You're not going to, you know, wear out your sandals and all of a sudden it's like, what do I do now? And so this special group with a special goal, the Lord is going to take care of in a very special way. And so we need to live by faith. I I think that so much of our world, we we get so dependent on programs and, and things, and I do it too. I'm pointing no fingers at anybody. I, I think very often we look at the world And we kind of do ministry the world's way. And yet the Lord wants us to live by faith. 
He, he has asked us to trust him uh, with these things that are very, 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 very hard for us to trust. You see, the work of the church is accomplished by the Lord. Okay, The Lord's at work in the ministry. It's his job to take care of our needs. One of the things that happens at our board meetings is we have, there's, can I tell you, there's lots of good ideas. There's all kinds of good ideas. And I, I literally mean all kinds of them. Things that, oh, yeah, I wish we could do all that. But one of the things that we have to do is pray for the Lord to provide. It's like, Lord, if you want this to happen, you need to provide for it. It's one of the ways that we can know God's will very often. And I'm not saying that money is necessarily the answer to those types of questions in in and of themselves. But if you ask the Lord and you've got something that you want to do and you say, look, Lord, if this is your deal here, if this is something you've guided me to do, then you need to make sure that there's provision for it. Because unless you take care of it, then I'm going to have to sustain it with the arm of flesh after we get it done. And we don't want to do that either. We want to be walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the desires of our own flesh. And frankly, there are a lot of good things that we can think about that would just for this church, for, for almost anyone, could be a desire of the flesh, even though they're good things. And so they trusted the Lord with that. And, and as, as you look at these things, you can kind of see how the Lord stripped them down. And that's not something we're comfortable with, amen? I'm not comfortable with being reduced so that I can be used. That's one of the things that I think we kind of reject, if you will, as people in a general sense. We don't like being brought down so we can be built up. We like the being built up thing, but we don't like the bringing down. But I want you to notice that the Lord really is reducing these guys to utter dependence upon Christ. They're not going out with, you know... a five-year plan and a ten-year plan and a massive bank account and, you know, everything they need. They're not each one carrying a backpack with two weeks' worth of supplies on it. They have zip. They got nothing. They don't even have an extra coat. And so now they're going to be dependent. And and notice how this happens. Look here at verse 4. There's a matter of their methods. How are they going to do this? What's going to be accomplished through their lives? Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. He says, go and find a place to minister and minister. We, we kind of lose that sometimes in the complexity of modern-day ministry. You realize that most people who come to Christ, some 68% by a, a Barna poll, 68% of people who come to Christ come to Christ not because of a church, not because of a crusade, but because one person shared Christ with another person. That's almost 70%. So notice what he's saying here. He's saying, here's how to do ministry. Go find somebody and minister to them. That's the method. The method of people coming to Christ is not, well, we'll... And I'm not chastising anyone here, so please don't take it that way. But I get some pretty funny phone calls. My nephew needs to be saved. I'm bringing him into your office. Like, I have the capacity to be able to force someone to, you know, well, he's got magic words. We'll just, I would love to share the gospel with your, with your nephew. But know this, it's probably you that's supposed to share the gospel with your nephew. It's the body of Christ that does that work. It's not the pastor. 
I'm actually supposed to teach and, and build up the body of Christ. You guys are ready to do that. That's really my job. Your job is to go make other disciples. And so he says, go and, and stay there and, and then depart. And whoever will not receive you, and I want to be careful here, don't blow this out of proportion. This isn't, well, you know, I, I went to their house and I, I said Jesus is Lord and they didn't receive it, and so I let the dust off my shoes and I'm out of here. It's not like that at all. But they had limited time. Can I tell you that the Lord's coming soon? And we have limited time, so make the best of it. And that really is the picture here. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake the very dust from your feet as testimony against them. Look, guys, i got other places to be. i got things to do. Time is short. I need to make good use of that time. You, you see, we need to be careful about wasting our time. And again, don't blow this out of proportion. Don't take it to the extreme. You know, well, I said Jesus in front of them and they didn't receive it, so I'm out of here. That's not what's being said here. But what is being said there is you know, and I'm guessing that most of you in this room have had this experience, somebody that you have repeatedly, maybe it's somebody at work, and you have shared the gospel with them. You've continued to be an example to them. You know emphatically that they know the truth through your life. And there comes a point in time when all they want to do is argue. They want to debate absolutely everything. They have no desire to hear the gospel message. They simply want to see if they can tear you down. When you get to those places to where you you realize that your time is being squandered and it's precious, then move on. Go minister to somebody who does want to hear. Pray for that person. Don't abandon their soul before God. Pray for them, but go spend your time someplace else. Go minister to someone who might possibly want to hear. Don't, don't go on and on and on and on. And I, I've, I've talked to people in this church where they'll come to me, well, I need, you know, what do I say to them when they say this? And what do I say to them when they say that? As D.L. Moody rightly said, if you can talk someone into being saved, you can talk them out of being saved. So, so don't try and talk people into being saved. Preach Christ to them with your life and show them the gospel life lived before them. Give them the truth. Obviously show them what it means to be a child of God, but don't get embroiled in wasting your time with people who don't want to hear what you have to say. And so he says to them, make sure that you're going on when you're, when you're done. Don't, don't stick around and get hung up on that one person. Because it debilitates the body of Christ, doesn't it? We, we get so hung up with that one person or maybe those two people. Uh, sometimes I have that situation with people who won't forsake sin. You know what? Sin separates you from God. And when someone comes to me and they just want to continue to talk about that same sinful behavior, ultimately I have to say, look, you need to go read your Bible, stop sinning, do what it says, and then we can talk because this is a waste of time. You're you're not going anywhere if you want to keep going that way. And so don't waste my time too. I've got other things to do with my time, people that actually want to do what God's Word says because that's all i got to share with you. I'm not going to give you a bunch of psychobabble. I'm not going to try and square away, you know, so that your ego feels well. I'm going to tell you this is what God's Word says. This, you are a child of God. This is what you should be doing. So make sure that you use God's methods in these things. A fifth thing, and notice this. How did they move around their movement, a matter of their movement? 
And so they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Remember, the mission was go preach the gospel and, and touch people's lives. You see those realistic actions that we undertake as the body of Christ tell people our God's real. Amen? When you when we say with our resources, okay, and I'll use the, the food ministry as an example of that. When we say with our resources we care about the poor and we do something about it, it is much more real than somebody saying, yeah, well, we care about the poor and they don't do anything about it. You get the picture? That person who sees us actually doing what we say we believe, now that is very, very real to them. And so they may not get it right away. They may not come to Christ right away. But you're giving them the best opportunity to know that that is truth. Because it's changed my life. It's changed your lives. We then do what God tells us to do. And so we do those things in in an organized fashion. And here it seems Luke's being a little bit terse here. He kind of summarizes the mission again as if they didn't get it in verse 1. They departed, went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You, you know, this one year, and I think it's, it's important to kind of get this aspect of it, in this one year was going to be the foundation, really, of the gospel being taken into the world. This was when it would happen. This year of the disciples going, uh, they're, they're getting the word out like is not going get, to get out ever again in the course of human history. This is the birthing of what we would call the Christian era. This, this is people recognizing, man, Jesus is God's only son. What does he require of us? What's happening? And, and so there's all kinds of other things competing at that point in time. You had the Roman oppression. You had the way of life that, you know, it's pretty funny. For those of you that have employees in the room, you know what's coming next. Isn't it weird how our employees, I had to work eight hours and 12 minutes today. You know, I had to to drive myself a half hour to work, you know. We... We, we whine, we snivel, we complain. You know, I didn't make it home at five to catch my favorite show or whatever. We have kind of an awfully easy life relative to these folks. They got up at daylight and they worked until dark. And when it got dark, they went to bed. They got up and did it all over again. And they did it seven days a week. Now, I'm not suggesting you to treat your employees that way. However, I am saying... There was limited time because people were engaged in staying alive. They had a subsistence way of living. And so what they did on a daily basis, and you can see this in third world countries to this day, go to, go to Mexico. People don't sit and, well, you know, I'm, I'm off. You know, they watch their, you know how that is, I'm off. You know, at, at, and I, this used to crack me up at the camp. Literally, if they were clocking out at 4.30, people would be at the back door of the dining hall at 4.25 so they could get in and ride out at you know, exactly 4.30. That wasn't this. And we need to realize that, that preaching the gospel is a lifelong endeavor. It's something that we do all day, every day. You do it when you love on your children. You do it when you're at the sporting events with your kids, don't you? When you're there, you're showing them what it means that mom and dad love you and we care about you. We're, we're doing that when we go camping. We hang out together. People know that we're Christians. 
They see us interacting. They realize that, no, well, there, there isn't, man, there's a lot of them. There's not 85 cases of beer there. And they're actually having fun. We're, we're preaching Christ. And so that movement went everywhere. And they would go and share it here and then share it there. And yeah, I'm, I met one of those crazy disciple guys. And they actually meant it. And notice how it continues here. And it says in verse 7, And now Herod the Tetrarch, remember that means ruler of a quarter. There were four of them. Philip was another one. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was being done by him. And, and as, as these things are undertaken, uh, he was perplexed. Herod's going, man, this is kind of weird. He gets a little confused. And so he says, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. He's speaking to John the Baptist. He said, well, I cut his head off. I mean, I don't think he came back from the dead, but maybe. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And so Herod said, John, I've beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see him. He's going, wow, this is kind of unique. Even secular governments take notice when the body of Christ does what they're supposed to do. We, we affect kings and kingdoms. You ever notice how people can bag on Christians all they want, but virtually every president in the last hundred years has had his own appointed pastor? Someone to come in when things go bad? Billy Graham was the pastor of four different presidents, actually five. You, you, you look at that opportunity that we have, we're actually changing the world to some degree in, in even the little things that we do. They seem sometimes meaningless, pointless to the world, but to us, we're just showing people Jesus. This message reminded them, and you can kind of see it. Some of them were reminded of John the Baptist. There was some preaching going on, proclaiming. They were speaking forth the truth. So that movement did that. Some of them thought of Elijah. And remember, Elijah was saying, look, this is the way it's going to be. Here's what's coming. He prophesied. Uh, and, and so... That, that part of it was like Elijah. Part of it was miracles just like Moses did. Remember what Moses did for the children of Israel. He was forever doing things. They're going, well, that must be God. And then they'd forget eight minutes later. They'd get across the Red Sea. Then they'd start complaining. So Herod had his own ideas as he sat in one of his mountain fortresses. And whether that was Machiris over in modern-day Jordan or Masada, uh, he had some pretty beautiful palaces, and actually next week we'll show you a couple of those. Just as Nathaniel said, wow, this guy's the son of God. I think people are starting to get the idea there's something different about Jesus. And so it was very, very, very interesting to see how all these things uh, come about, and people begin to say, well, who is this guy? You ever had people ask you that question? Who is that? What is church about? What does it mean to be a Christian? You're different than the rest of the people I work with. What's up with that? That's called living it, folks. When you live it, people take notice. When you talk about it, not so much. But when you live it, people see it. When, when you honor the Lord in all things... When, when you do what the Word of God says, people want to know who is this. 
Who is their God? Who is it that they proclaim? Who is it that they preach with the substance of their lives? And yes, in this case, Herod wanted to see a miracle. But bottom line is it was still an open door, wasn't it? Even though he sought Jesus for the wrong reason, a heathen king talking about Jesus in his palace still made Jesus on the forefront of people's hearts and minds. So sometimes we don't think the message is getting through, but then you find out, hey, yeah, well, it was that conversation that you had at the water cooler. It was that conversation you had at the gym. It was that conversation on the at the job site to where you were talking about the Lord, and then you yourself live it out. And you go through something that you don't want to go through, and you do it in the power and the strength of the Lord, and then other people a few weeks later go, now I get it. Now I understand. The Lord now decides that the guys need a holiday. They're going to go on a little mini vacation. Pick up with me as we wrap this up this morning. Verse 10, it says, And the apostles, when they had returned, so they've gone out and they've done a little bit of work. They've gone out and they're now coming back with their stories and told them all that they had done. They're having a little Jesus and Company uh, CEO meeting with the board. Okay, The guys are coming back. They're bringing their quarterly reports with them. And they go, yeah, I got 14 guys that got saved yesterday. You know, and they're doing that kind of thing. They're talking about what had happened. Told all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately to a deserted place or a desert place uh, to a place called Bethsaida and a city that belonged to that name. Now, there are a couple of Bethsaidas in, in, the, in view here, but the one that's believed this one is is actually just on the other side of the Jordan River. And so as you look at the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River comes in uh, in the north, and just on the opposite side, that's kind of interesting because modern-day Jordan is very rocky and desolate, and there's a place where it kind of juts into the Jordan River Valley, and it's still actually desolate. Gersa is also in that same location, but a little bit further to the south, actually on the opposite shore. This is near the mouth of the Jordan River. And actually the, the name means house of fish in Aramaic. It doesn't mean house of bread. It means house of fish. And so it's kind of interesting that it would be a deserted or a desert place, but it would also be home to some fishermen. That's because it was close to the Sea of Galilee. So it was kind of a rocky outcropping that was on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, not too far from the lake. And so they're going to go on a little bit of a holiday here. And it says in verse 11, now we see the service end of it. Now remember, they've just gone out and they've ministered. They've probably won people to Christ. They're living their lives by example. And now this test comes. They're on vacation with Jesus. They're taking a retreat. That's a good way to look at it. Verse 11. But when the multitudes knew it, it's interesting how the multitudes always seem to have a second sense about what's going on in church leadership. Because I can tell you very often when we try and get together as church leadership, there's all kinds of interruptions. You're like, well, can, can you go to the food pantry? And you, this person needs, there's always things going on. And so, and they followed him, and they re, he received them. Notice Jesus doesn't put them off at all. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And then a, as the day began to wear away, the twelve came to him. And here's how we kind of respond sometimes in ministry. And I've been guilty of it myself. The twelve said to him, Come on, Jesus, send the multitude away. 
Ministry would be super easy if there were no people involved. <laughs> if you didn't have any people to deal with, just get rid of the people. Just send the people away. All your problems go with the people, yeah? All the needs go with the people. You can kind of get the picture here. Send the multitude away. We're exhausted. I mean, we've been sharing the gospel. I mean, we didn't even have any money. We didn't take any food. We've been living off the land. And it's not been easy, Jesus. That they may go into the surrounding towns and country and fend for themselves, basically, and lodge and get some provisions. For we are in a deserted place. It's like, look, Jesus, what's going on here? I mean, can you see where we are? I mean, come on. And he said to them, mm-mm, you give them something to eat. And they're looking at each other like, man, he's been in the desert sun for too long. It's like, what's going on here? Give him something to eat. We don't have enough for ourselves. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go buy food for all these people. Isn't it funny how they immediately turned to the flesh? He had told them, don't take a money bag, don't take a staff, don't take a tunic, just go do and I'll take care of you. They had just done that and they had come back. So they lived through the experience, yeah? They're, they're on their way back with reports that, hey, it worked. But it's not going to work now. It only worked then, it won't work now. This is way too big. You can kind of get the picture. For there were about 5,000 men. Now in that day and time, of course, this crowd largely being Jewish, the women were not counted. They counted the men. So there's probably 10,000 people or so. This is a pretty good-sized crowd. This is a sports arena full of people. This is no small gathering. If there were children with them. Could have been more than that. He says, look, there's 5,000 people out there. We came on vacation. We didn't have enough for us. He said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. I imagine that's a lot of groups of 50, amen? Maybe 200 of them. Can you imagine looking out at a sea of 10,000 people divided up in groups of 50 in a desert, deserted place? you you got some loaves and fishes. You don't have enough to feed yourselves. And Jesus said, it's okay, we got this. And he took, notice what he does, the five loaves of two fish, and he looked up to heaven. And we've got everything you have, every loaf, every fish, Every dollar, every car, every ounce of gas, the power that comes out of the plugs in your home, uh, everything you have came from God. It's all His. Every last bit of it. And so He looks up into heaven and He blessed it. Do you, do you ever wondered sometimes, what's the sense? And if you're honest, I think we all have. What's the sense in blessing this? Because it's showing God that you're walking by faith. God, I trust you. I don't know how far this is going to go. I think there's been times in all of our lives when we've, we've lived with less than we really want to live with. But he says, look, here's what we have. And he broke them. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And so they all ate and were filled. And twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them, the disciples. That would be one basket for each disciple. Amen? One basket, each disciple. They're bringing it back to Jesus. He's going, told you. See? You want to walk by sight? You want to walk by faith? Choice is yours. It's interesting. You, you can almost see in our modern day and time, the crowd gets out their smartphones. 
they've got Jesus' cell number on their smartphone. They're plugging it in. Look, he's over here in Bethsaida. Well, you know, so they all follow him over there. They get there and they go, wow, you guys are hanging out here? It's kind of like for those of you, you've been to La Quinta. You look at La Quinta and you're like, why would anyone ever come out here? And then you see what they do with water and golf courses, and you're just like, oh, well, that's why they come out here. But that's the disciples. They've gone to kind of a deserted desert place, and they're sitting there, and they get hungry, and the multitudes begin to swarm around them. And it's interesting to me that the disciples take up the socialist viewpoint in this. They see this massive crowd, and that's all they see, the socialist viewpoint. There's this massive crowd, and there's nothing we can do for them. So we need to tax somebody. Somebody needs to be taxed. We need to go into town. We need to buy something. We need to do something about this. And Jesus doesn't see that at all. He sees the people. And we aren't told, but I can pretty much assess from the text that Jesus looked out at the people and he could name them by name. He saw the people. He saw the people's needs. What a joy as he looks out and he just sees all of these individuals. He says, you know what, I want to minister to every last one of them. They all have a common need, so we'll meet the common need, but we're going to meet it in a way that they know that I see them. And church very often sees multitudes. Jesus sees individuals. We need to be careful that we don't lose sight of individuals. And I can do that. I can tell you I can do that as a pastor at times. You just kind of see the things that need to get done and you forget you need to stop and talk to that one person. You need to minister to that need. Jesus was ministering to the need. and Jesus says the unthinkable. Hey, Peter, invite him to dinner. You can almost see Jesus doing it. Now, we're not told. We don't, we don't get his facial expressions here. But you can almost see Jesus like talking to Father God kind of under his breath. Watch this. I'll tell them to stay for dinner. They pull out the bag. Are you kidding me? Now, in John's Gospel, we're given a few extra details. Remember what's said there. He actually sends Philip to go, go get the food. And he's like, with what? You told us not to bring any money bag. We got, yeah, sure, Jesus, like that's going to happen. Furthermore, look around. There's not exactly, there's not even a 7-Eleven around here. We can't even get some of those funky sandwiches in the deli case thing. There's no weak old cheeseburgers in there or anything. There's nothing. The cupboard is empty, okay? I think the Lord likes to send us out into situations to where the cupboard's actually empty and we've got to trust Him. We've got to lean on him a little bit. And as we do so, he always shows up, doesn't he? You know, I've never had the Lord forsake me, ever. And his word says he will never, ever forsake me. He won't leave. Let's us go through tough things. Doesn't mean you won't have some problems. Doesn't mean you won't engage in something that maybe you don't want to engage in. Because he sent you into that storm like we saw last time. You're there and you're going, wow, you know, I just don't really want to be here right now. But the Lord is faithful in the storm, remember. And the Lord is faithful to provide. It's His crowd, isn't it? Is it not God's crowd? The people came because they were God's. They didn't come because they were Peter's or James or John's or Andrew's. They came because they were God's people. And so it was God's job to take care of them. And God doesn't fail at God's job. 
So they do something pretty interesting, and I, and I like this, and I think it's very practical. Jesus has them start with what they do have, not with what they don't have. Jesus has them start with what they do have, not what they don't have. And, 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 I, and I want you to notice why he does this, and I believe why he does this. Because we all come from varying backgrounds, amen? We have different abilities and skills and gifts and talents and resources at our disposal, amen? And some people have more and some people have less. And so the great equalizer in that is utter dependence upon Jesus, amen? So he wants you to start with, me to start with, us to start with, what we do have, and if we need more, it's his responsibility. And, and so as you, as you look at this group of guys... I, I want you to see just a real simple thing here. Jesus was the producer. They were just the distributors. Amen? It's like we went down. Now, for all of you who know, granite countertops are very expensive. Amen? Not if you buy them in downtown L.A. But I can tell you this. I would not want to have the, the, the equipment necessary to make those granite countertops. And so you can go to someone who is a distributor and you can buy something that you yourself couldn't make. Amen? I, I, there ain't no way I'm slabbing up no granite. Okay? It's not going to happen. You've got these giant wet saws and these computerized cutting devices and all this kind of stuff. So I'm grateful when someone is a distributor of something that someone has produced. You get the picture? That's the Lord. The Lord's stuff is everywhere. It's everything. We're simply to take what he produced and be distributors of it. We pass it along, in other words. We show people, hey, look, this came from the Lord. And, and so I would leave you with a couple of things as we, as we close up. You remember the miracles the Lord's done in your life. Do you remember the miracles the Lord's done in your life? Because it's those miracles you look back on when times are tough, times are lean, things aren't going the way that you want them to, and you go, oh, that's right, God was faithful. He was faithful. He's always been faithful. You know, he can take that meagerness, because if you look at this basket that they had, it was pretty meager, amen? But meagerness blessed of God is abundance. Do you get it? Meagerness that's blessed of God ends up in abundance. We don't know how he does it. We just know he does. That doesn't mean that every time you have something, you, know, you just pray about it and God's going to give you more. It simply means that what God knows needs to get done, he'll do in his abundance, not in your meagerness. You get that? In other words, you can look at your own resources and go, man, I just can't do it. That brings the Lord to view, doesn't it? I can't, but he can. And so it's so important for us to realize that what we do on this earth we don't do because we produce it. We do it because we distribute it. We're, we're preaching a gospel that he lived. We're, we're passing out things that he built and made and did and provided for. We're, we're giving people hope that isn't my hope. It's his hope. And, and so as we see these things, one of the things that you know just came to mind, and I'm going to have the worship team come back out, and we're going to pass out the elements of communion now. As we, as we begin to, to see what the Lord does here, He, he takes a, a place of famishedness. In other words, people were starving. He takes that place to where we would look at it and go, man, this is a recipe for disaster. There is no way this is going to work out. And not only does He use it for good, 
but he actually causes it to, to produce abundance. Notice what happens at the end. Okay? There's 12 baskets left. And the picture for me as I was studying this this morning, what we see as meagerness, the Lord sees as abundance. What we see as an impossibility, he sees as a probability. He's going to actually do something with it if we trust him. And the picture here as we take it out a little while is that the Lord can use your empty basket. The Lord can use your couple of fish and your five barley loaves. The Lord can do what you don't think he can. The Lord constantly does things that when we look at it, we go, man, if that was up to me, that would have never happened. And so sometimes we look at the story and we just see it for the miracle it is. It was a miracle, no question about it. But it's also a picture of our provision at the cross, isn't it? Because you were hopelessly lost in your trespasses and sin. Amen? You were dead. That's what Ephesians says. But He hath made us alive. Family of God, that's an impossibility, isn't it? For us to have the righteousness of Christ on our own, for you to produce of yourself the righteousness of God, there isn't one of us in here, myself included myself first, that's going to succeed at that endeavor. If I'm going to try and work up to being holy like God is holy, I'm dead. It's over. Quit before you start because it's not happening. You can't do it. And yet, isn't that what the world tries to do? And in fact, they'll tell you, well, yeah, you'll ask them, well, are you, are you a believer? Oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And you ask them why. Well, you know, I, I went on a missions trip, or I did this, or I did that, or there's something that they gave, or something they said, or they'll, they'll indicate some work that they did. By the works of the flesh, your Bible says, no one is justified. In other words, it's an impossibility. You can't do it. I can't do it. And so Jesus took an empty cross and he filled the cross with himself, didn't he? He, he took the cross, which was a, an instrument of torture and pain, and he made it into the most inclusive place on the planet. Amen? Drawing as many as would be saved unto him through the message of the cross. And so when you look at what Christ does in our lives, you can easily see how this was actually a picture of what he would do at Golgotha. He's saying, look, it's going to look empty. It's going to look impossible. You're going to see... You're going to see the trial. You're going to hear the trial. You're going to witness my scourging. You're going to think for a moment that the Romans were successful and the Jewish Sanhedrin were successful. You're going to think that it's an impossible situation because you're going to see me take my last breath and offer up my life and say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And you're going to think that my death is the end. Because to you, beyond that is impossible. You see, from a human perspective, when you look at the cross, until the time that Jesus took his last breath, people could have still been holding out for the flesh. Amen? They could have, well, you know, maybe he'll survive. Somehow he's going to make it. 
We'll pull the nails out of his hands and feet. We'll, we'll get him down from there. We'll take him to the best doctors. And, and we'll get our Jesus back. But he was dead. He had shed his last drop of blood. He had given his life a ransom for many. It, it looked hopeless from a human perspective. And so I share with you this morning as you hold the elements of communion in your hand from a human perspective, this is kind of silly, isn't it? It's like a little chunk of cracker and and a cup of juice. From a human perspective, this is kind of hopeless as well. Unless you believe what's behind all of this. As often as you drink of this cup and eat of this bread, you do show forth the Lord's death until He comes. You see, he, he swapped our places. He took your place on the cross and my place on the cross. He did what was impossible because you couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. No one could ever have done it. And so, this miracle, taking a boy's lunch and dividing it up, is exactly what he did on the cross. Because it began with those that believed it that day and it goes to this day and now for everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ they'll be saved because His blood was shed for the remission of your sin and mine. Because His body was broken so that ours wouldn't have to be. He, He took your iniquity, my iniquity, my pain, your pain. He took everything that would ever keep you from the presence of God and took it to the cross and He cried out, It is finished. And so as the disciples brought back the baskets, it was really a picture of the harvest of souls that would come through people making disciples. Look, we started with nothing. Most of these people here had nothing when they got here, but when they left, they were all filled and there was extra, there was leftovers. And at the cross, that's us. We not only get salvation, but we get eternal life and we get an abundant life now. Amen? It's because of the cross. We're going to pray together and then we're going to partake and then we're going to worship the King. Father, thank You for this beautiful Beautiful picture, Lord. That cross started out empty, but it ended up filled. And since that day, millions, perhaps billions, have known You because You did what was impossible. Lord, as humankind looked on it, there was no way You were coming back from that tomb, but You raised up on that third day. And Lord, we thank You that it was Your shed blood and it was Your broken body that made that possible. Lord, thank You for the abundant life that we live. We thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your blessings. We ask all of this in the blessed name of Jesus. We worship You. We remember You, Lord. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Let's partake together.